Okay, welcome to uh, Left welcome Out. Welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio broadcasting at WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out uh, discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by producer Hank, who's a real pro. Uh, listeners are invited to call today. Uh, listen, invited the program, invited to call the program today. Excuse me at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. That's two six eight WRCT and area code four one two. And you can also send mail, electronic mail, to Bob at leftout.info, and we'll try to monitor the uh, mail uh, as it comes in during during the program. Uh, so first, I guess the only really major announcement is we're back. It's the beginning of the year. Uh, it's already January 30th. <laughs> Time goes by pretty quickly, but I was out of town two weeks ago, and before that we had a uh, winter break, and so uh, this is our first show of 2007. So uh, a somewhat belated Happy New Year to all of our left-out listeners, and thank you for the electronic mail. We've gotten requests wondering what happened to us since the end of November, and I yeah. think it's just academic schedule and uh, you know holidays being what they are and so forth. So we've been off the air and taking a break for a little while. So today we have a couple of uh, topics that we would like to discuss and hope to get your uh, callers in. As uh, everyone well knows, uh, since our last show, uh, lots and lots has been going on in the world and in the U.S., um, and we'll get to some of those topics a little bit later. Uh, I want to uh, come back to uh, some of the recent uh, uh, and really seriously disturbing uh, uh, travesties that are being uh, imposed by the Bush administration on the U.S., uh, on, on, our, on, on, on the United States, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But in the first part of our program today, what I would like to do is talk about a seemingly esoteric-sounding subject, but I think one that affects um, many of our listeners and uh, the left-out listening audience and has a much broader impact, I think, on our lives than maybe people have come to realize. realize. And so I want to talk about that today, which is something called the Bayh-Dole Act. And I also want to talk a little bit, uh, going from that, uh, leads into a, a recent book uh, that was uh, written about two years ago. It's a little bit uh, not brand new, but it's called it's re- re- reasonably recent book by Marsha Angel, uh, who's an MD, called uh, The Truth About the Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us and What to Do About It, which is related to all of the <clears throat> controversies that are consistently in the news about the ever-increasing cost of health care and also about the how drug companies are are uh, I think raping the American public in their uh, in their behavior and uh, Marsha Angel is in a position to know she's a, really quite an authoritative position she's the former uh, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine which is one of the two that in the journal of the AMA being the premier medical research journals uh, in the field as far as I understand it and someone who was a professor at Harvard University and, uh, and a practicing physician I think and so she uh, writes from a position of authority I would say and so this is uh, a consequence some of this ties in with our earlier material, which I'll talk about uh, in the beginning. I then want to talk a bit about uh, domestic affairs. We talk about the uh, last week's State of the Union address, or was it week before last? I'm losing track of time already. Um, which uh, and the follow-on to that, and also some re- really recent developments, uh, the things that the Bush administration has been doing to, I think, the national detriment. And we'll come back to that also a little bit later. So for our first topic today, we I would like to talk about the Bayh-Dole Act, and I was particularly inspired by my own personal experiences. Uh, Danny and I, as many of our listeners know, are professors and active researchers here at Carnegie Mellon University, so we're we're plugged in uh, very much on the research scene, um, and how, in particular, with research funding and also with university management of research and university decisions. And um, I, it, it has come to I've uh, have come to recognize. Uh, 
that a, 19, uh, a, a law passed in 1980 uh, called the Bayh-Dole Act, which I'll explain in a little in a minute, uh, which is now about tw- a little bit more than 25 years old, 20, 26 and change years old, um, is uh, has really has had and continues to have a very uh, serious, uh, I think, in some ways deleterious effect on American universities, and I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about it. So let's start out and, and, and review a little bit about the Bayh-Dole Act, and I also want to mention some articles that we've linked to on the Left Out website, and you might have a look at that. So the first thing is this is uh, Birch Bayh. Uh, many of you may know there's a current Indiana Senator, Evan Bayh. Um, his father, Birch Bayh, was previously the Indiana Senator. Oh, it's his father. I yeah, didn't know his that. Father, yeah. Yeah. And so he and he was Senator. I, I don't have the fingers offhand, but I'm sure he was Senator for decades from, from Indiana, a very influential Senator. And Bob Dole, who uh, we've all heard of and know all about, uh, Bob Dole, who speaks himself of himself in the third person, ran for president. Um, so I'm uh, uh, authored, uh, co-authored an act uh, called the Bayh-Dole Act, which passed in 1980. Which uh, what it did was uh, <clears throat> to change the way in which um, the the uh, proceeds and profits and outcomes of research conducted at American universities uh, was was uh, was handled um, <clears throat> prior to. Prior to the Bayh-Dole Act, uh, you could say, and this is a, a bit of an oversimplification, but it, 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 it I think it uh, is a useful, uh, useful way to think about it, is uh, prior to the Bayh-Dole Act, there was the idea that uh, universities uh, were there to uh, pursue, uh, pursue research, pursue education, uh, come up with original new ideas, um, you know, investigate what is possible, look at the foundations of things, uh, understand their implications, carry them out. And then there was always the possibility that uh, that the proceeds uh, from from the research that is conducted at universities, well, not the possibility, but really the expectation that in aggregate that the uh, research uh, that was conducted at universities would benefit society in a number of ways. And there are many uh, vehicles by which that was and remains possible. For example, through patenting of inventions and uh, otherwise um, and, and other and other means of taking advantage of them. The point to to mention here, which I think is highly relevant to my own perspective on the issue, is that, um, as, as many of you know, if you know how uh, research at universities work, uh, primarily professors at universities such as ourselves get paid to teach. The university pays us to be teachers. And then the, we supplement our income um, and, uh, and also put together a research program based on money that we can raise from, from external sources. And the university... Uh, helps us in, you know, obtaining that resources, those resources and providing the facilities and the context and so on. But in a certain way, it's an entrepreneurial enterprise. That is, the individual professors have to, uh, go out and get that money, um, to fund their research, to pay for their students, to pay for travel, to buy equipment, uh, to pay the university for the use of the facilities, uh, for research purposes and so on. And that money has to be, has to be raised by the individual professors or in small teams, often people People collaborate, particularly at Carnegie Mellon. That's very common um, to raise that money. And, of course, the bulk of that money comes from uh, the U.S. government, here in the U.S. anyway. And, of course, in Europe, it comes from the individual governments and also the European community and various countries do it differently. But as you well know, uh, the bulk of that money comes directly from the government. Now, in the case of computer, so what is, computer what is, science at yeah. Carnegie Mellon, 
that money is coming. Go ahead, Danny. That, that money well, is coming from the National Science Foundation uh, is one of the federal agencies, and there are other federal agencies as well. Uh, nationally, the biggest player, and I think in terms of dollar figures, would be the National Institutes of Health, which, uh, which provides a vast uh, amount of money to research related to, well, health and medicine and biology, fundamental research also, applied medical research. But in, in my own personal uh, life, it, it's a National Science Foundation. Also at, at CMU, there are other other federal agencies are commonly uh, are commonly fund research here. For example, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or uh, the uh, Department of Energy in some cases. And I'm sure there's 20 others that I can't think of at the moment. Uh, more recently, there's a Department of Homeland Security right, um, right. Uh, funds research. So there's a number of federal agencies that provide the money. For the present purposes, it's not important to me or to pr- for the purpose of this. Discussion. Not important uh, the which agencies those are, but the fact that it's federal money, and then we all know that the federal government's money is actually money that's collected from taxpayers. So this is ultimately taxpayer money that's used to fund um, research uh, nationally. So here's so here's where the uh, here's where the whole issue comes in. So the whole issue comes in is. Uh, how, uh, to whom do the results of, uh, of, uh, of federally sponsored research belong? And how are those, uh, results to be promulgated? So, as I was saying earlier, it's a bit of a simplification, but prior to the Bayh-Dole Act, there was a model that universities were engaged in research and education, companies were engaged in doing business, and they were kind of different realms, and there were certainly points of contact, but they were in many ways different realms. What the Bayh-Dole Act did was to uh, change the equation dramatically by essentially saying that the, uh, the, the results of the research belong to the universities in which that work is done regardless of how they are, uh, how they are uh, funded by federal sources. And so what this meant was that uh, universities were now able to directly profit from the results of the research that they do. Now, in the articles that I've mentioned, I'm going to summarize in a moment, um, most of the emphasis in the articles I'm mentioning today is on work that is done in connection with pharmaceuticals because this is the hugest amount of money. So even though computer science, I think, does generate quite a lot of money altogether um, for Carnegie Mellon and other universities in the U.S., by comparison to the drug industry money, it's peanuts. It's a trivial mm-hmm. amount of money. A lot of it is drug industry money. So you'll see if you read these articles, if you take the time, you'll find that the emphasis is on that. That's not my personal expertise, but that's where the uh, these particular articles are talking about. And why is that? Well, the reason is, is of course, it's fairly obvious that uh, drugs are things, uh, prescription medicines are the kinds of things that you and I will benefit from uh, immediately and in the short run. And uh, by and large, the research and the development of those ideas for prescription drugs is, drugs is performed at universities. That brings me into the second topic, which we'll come back to later about the drug companies. But we'll uh, we'll get to that we'll get to that later. So the the idea about the Bayh Dole Act then was that universities were not only able to but also expected to commercialize the results of their research. And you might think, well, this is a great thing because, after all, it brings in money to universities and it encourages universities to promote the uh, results of research. And this ought to be facilitate it uh, being, you know, being benefiting, being a direct benefit to the average member of society. But there's an awful lot of evidence that it really isn't working out that way. Yeah. And so go ahead. Dan. Well, the article that that <clears throat> um, that Bob and I read uh, is it's uh, <clears throat> called "The Law of Unintended Consequences." It appeared in um, 
Fortune magazine on uh, September of 2005. So this is something mm-hmm. written by a business from the business uh, for the business press, uh, and it says the law of unintended consequences, which implies this the punchline of the story that what sounds good uh, in terms of promoting the the uh, commercialization and ultimate improvement of of our healthcare system or, or, or the, the drugs that we have to to treat illnesses and so on. Um, that this would uh, get them out more quickly uh, and just generally advance progress uh, more quickly. But uh, as this article uh, uh, describes, there there are a lot of reasons that turned out to be not as nearly as effective as as it seems to have um, as, it's, as as it was hoped to have been, and ended up actually interfering with um, with a lot of the important aspects of. Um, of the way research is done traditionally in universities, so I don't know if you want to, if you want me to to jump in and and, and sort of wait uh-huh. a second. Uh, go uh, ahead, Bob. Answer, answer your telephone. Uh, so I'm busy looking. So uh, so this article by Clifton Leaf in uh, Fortune magazine is linked to uh, on the left out webpage. I was also fooling around. I have a mistake which I will correct later. There's also a link uh, to an article from uh, American Scientist, which is a publication of the Sigma Xi Professional uh, Scientific Honorary Society um, about the uh, promulgation of research results. Okay, do but, you want to pick so, up? Yeah, ahead. so I just wanted to mention a couple of the reasons in which uh, – uh, this article describes where where things sort of went wrong. Um, so uh, one consequence of this was that universities began to view, and also researchers as well, began to view with much more greedy eyes the results of the research. And as a result of that, uh, scientists who came up with a with a with a brilliant with a potentially valuable discovery um, would instead of immediately telling all of his colleagues at other institutions, going to conferences, presenting their research, putting his, you know, stamp of, of you know, invention on, on the discovery and, and, and you know, time stamping it and telling everybody about it. Um, this has, suddenly the lawyers get involved immediately and university lawyers and uh, the strategic issues come involved, become involved. Well, here's an idea. How do we capitalize on this? How do we get ahead of the competition? Uh, and... Um, how do we make money off this? And that doesn't, that's a completely different, um, uh, approach or different, uh, way of doing things than, than ordinary advancing of one's career or ordinary, uh, ordinary, uh, progress in science. So, um, Clifton Leaf, the author of the article, uh, lists the ways in which, uh, lots, lots of anecdotal uh, evidence of, from scientists saying, you know, they couldn't publish, they didn't, decided not to publish the results, not to pursue it in the same way they would have otherwise done so. Um, and his kind of thesis at the end of the article is that actually progress has really not been as rapid as it should have been. There's always biotech companies which really aren't doing as well as the original promise, um, uh, that, 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 uh, they should have done. Yeah, so uh, Clifton Leaf's article at some point, he has a few choice quotes here. One is, uh, what used to be a scientific community of free and open debate now often seems like a litigious scrum of data hoarding and suspicion. And what's more, Americans are paying for it through the nose. 
So he's uh, he's talking about uh, talking about the development in this article, development of these of these trends that were initiated by the by Dolak. And as um, as um, as Danny is mentioning here, a lot of what goes on is yeah, just controlling patents. So the what it what it has done, and I think a real criticism that uh, I think is very bothersome to me is that uh, what the by Act has done is to um, is to treat. Uh, is to turn um, universities into, well, uh, to be, uh, sorry to sound a bit pejorative, but I, I can't help it, to turn universities into amateur venture capitalists. Uh, what happens is is that uh, now throughout the country, um, every university in the U.S. has a tech transfer office, either by that name or some similar name, mm-hmm. and they hire uh, business professionals of some form or another whose job is to try to pick a winner. And there is a constant emphasis on on trying to raise money by uh, by picking a winner, by looking at who's going, who's ahead, and who's going to, which kinds of research areas are most likely to lead to lead to uh, a big uh, payday, a big yeah. uh, big payoff so, bonanza. So there's a couple of quotes in the article, but from Columbia University, um, it's who exactly was it? Um, at Columbia, somebody at Columbia. The lawyer, that was the, uh, the lawyer, university lawyer. Universities uh, should be able to get the same thing that companies get. It's perfectly proper for Columbia to do what any other biotech companies would do, re- to request companies take licenses um, to the patent and pay a reasonable royalty. And later, uh, um, Gindler, that's the lawyer, elaborates, Columbia acted no differently than the rest of the business community in the United States. Yeah, that's that's the money line right there. Uh, the the or the uh, in Gindler the uh, the University Council from uh, Columbia University. This is pertaining to a drug case uh, that uh, Columbia, very uh, I would say from a, a business point of view, very deftly manipulated the patent law in their favor, uh, and in fact their behavior was subsequently specifically outlawed because of it. But uh, yeah, the the money line is Columbia acted no differently than the rest of the business community in the United mm-hmm. States. Okay, uh, let that sink in for a few moments because really that statement is exactly the the, the that's the brunt of my criticism, is that what it turns uh, it turns universities into part of the business community in the United States, and not only are universities ought they not to be part of the business community, but in fact, as I observe it. And trying to be part of the business community fail miserably because it just isn't it isn't the university's mission it isn't uh, it isn't the uh, university's purpose in life the people who are doing it are often uh, failed businessmen themselves who go into universities to try to uh, make up for their failures as businessmen I've often seen and we uh, and we see uh, we see that kind of a pattern. But it has, uh, so you can kind of joke about that, but the point is, is not so much, uh, you know, some make snide comments about the ineptitude of, of management, but rather to point out that it has an enormously distorting effect. So, for example, um, I'll give you a few examples of this. So, once you have the universities are in the business of being, uh, of being, uh, you know, amateur venture capitalists, then you are bound to see, of course, that the decisions about where universities hire their faculty, what are considered to be valid uh, conditions for promotion, what are considered to be uh, signs of success in research, what are going to be the um, you know the trends, the way in which the university is organized, is is inevitably when we're talking about you know trying to cash in on hundreds of millions of dollars of profit like we have in the Columbia University is inevitably going to be distorted toward things that either are or more likely perceived to be mm-hmm. you know the next great thing. Of course, we all know 
uh, if if I or anybody else around here were so brilliant about figuring out what the next great thing is, they can make themselves rich and uh, and uh, on the on Wall Street, and they don't need the university to help them do it. So it's uh, it's a it's a tough problem to figure out what's yeah. going to be the next big thing and what's going to hit big because after all, a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is uh, you know is extremely difficult to predict. But universities are very much now engaged in trying to predict and pick those winners. Yeah, the other thing I think in this article talks. <clears throat> about is the, the amount of litigation that has ended up re- resulting from this. So hundreds of millions of dollars were generated. The, there's a, the, the article begins with, you know, like a four, $500 million payday for Emory University right. um, for, some, for some drug that they developed. And, um, uh, but it turns out that the litigation that resulted was tremendously expensive because they the, 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 often what will happen is you'll the, there'll be a, a the one 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 group will tweak the result of another group uh and the first group will claim that they they deserve the patent and that there's a there's a, now an, a claim of that both of them have some legitimate right to it but that results in since there's so much money is involved they go to court takes years it sucks up millions of <clears throat> dollars in illegal fees and the whole thing ends up just being a mess and the researchers are drawn into these lawsuits and and um, the universities good, are suing one another. Yeah, I it's mean, it's overall it's a it's a, a tremendously um, another thing that uh, that Clifton Lee very aptly points out is that uh, the race to, to part of where the litigation comes from, you might say, oh, it's just greed and jealousy and so on, people suing each other, you know, trying to screw one another. But that's not totally the case. A lot of it, I think, is is legitimate because, in a sense, you can understand it because of the nature of scientific research. And so what happens is here, you know, we all know that um, in practically any scientific discovery, um, the person who gets all the credit very often just happened to be the guy standing nearest to the goal line and managed to sort of dribble the ball across the goal. You know, kind of did the last kick or did the header that put it across that led to the quotable and publicizable result when, in fact, of course, you know, it was just years and years and years of decades possibly, maybe even centuries in some (laughs) research areas like mathematics, for example. It can take centuries to sort out uh, what is needed to finally get the ball over the goal line and to figure out what the solution to that problem is. So what we have here is we have a situation and they uh, Clifton Leaf describes quite vividly an example of having to do with identification of a certain gene for susceptibility to certain con- forms of cancer and then the obvious uh, effort to treat uh, the cancer on that basis where, you know, well, the short version of the story is, you know, someone dribbled it across the goal line and then there was this, you know, mad dash by universities to go and patent that result. Uh, and it belonged solely to them, of course, you see, because it was done at the University of X, you know, and, and at the University of X, whatever whatever it was in yeah. this particular case, um, you know, that was their work. Right. And so, exactly. so, of course, so they're going to get sued so somebody because, you know, the person who kicked it across the line knows perfectly well, as everybody yeah. else knows, that, you know, there was tons of other people behind it. And so there's so, a drug. They find a, a molecule that acts as a certain a certain drug, but it's very weak. But they but because of that invent <clears throat> discovery, they know which type of site they need to create. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and and but somebody somebody else comes along and, and designs a molecule that does a little bit better job of bond, binding to that site, and and then that the second group can patent it and make hundreds of millions of dollars for that. And the first group is completely left out unfairly in that sense. So and naturally they're going to be you know angry about that and. Want to say, hey, we get some. We should have some of that five hundred million dollar uh, booty. So uh, that that's the kind of thing that happens, and it doesn't really make any sense. 
It, it certainly does not. And so what we see is that uh, it leads, in, in the burden of Clifton Leaf's article, really a very, very good article um, on this topic, the burden of his article is simply that contrary to opening up, you know, research to commercialization, uh, opening it up to the wonders of the free market, in fact, all, what it has done is closed it down, created all sorts of friction, prevented things from being promulgated because, you know, after all, it's better to just sit on these things, even things that are not worth developing or, you know, people hang on to patents, they hoard patents in the hopes of selling them one day. All these things impede impede research. And to quote Clifton Leaf again, he says uh, somewhere here um, uh, is uh, regarding certain fears. He said, the truth is that even if some skittish VCs stay home, the science will get done. In other words, by Dole has served mostly as a nervous mother for a science that never needed one. I think the point being that, you know, people like us are driven to do uh, scientific research for reasons other than money. Exactly. That's and what I was going to say. That, that it, there's a, there's a big a, myth that money is the, is the ultimate driver of all of all human activity, exactly. and that's completely false. But when you go to university, you, you see a place But, but, but Danny, isn't, isn't that people? why we do left out? Uh, isn't, <laughs> that where, isn't it to get paid? Isn't it for the big payday we hope to get Wait a second. Are you, be, are you being paid? I, I didn't know you were being paid. I'm, 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 How my, much are they paying you? I am just hoping that one day that, uh, that one of these uh, large media conglomerates Oh, we'll right. buy out left yeah, out. Yeah, right. And of we'll hold, we'll hold out for the billion dollars <laughs> and then we can retire. It will be <laughs> it will be great. So I think it's uh it's a very yeah, that's a big myth and that that just comes from uh the really expertly promulgated myth from the Republican Party that the the market is the be all and end all of life in the United States or in the world and so people get to the point where they can't even imagine. Of course, the only possible reason to do scientific research is for that big payday. Yeah. And so it's really uh it's really Really, kind of um, um, is it's really kind of a, a pernicious uh, influence. And I was going to say a few other things. It has other influences, as I said, on selection of research areas, emphasis on 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 what kind of topics are promoted, where hiring is done. Thereby, it affects the curriculum. It also greatly affects uh, people's devotion to education. So we are charging students forty thousand dollars a year and change uh, of that order. I don't know the exact number offhand. You know, for their education, I think they get a fine education. But you know, uh, there's a lot. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, energy goes into you know chasing down the possibility of making that big payday. And I think uh, these things are not. Let's say I would say uh, confidently, these things are not wholly good. I don't think that these are 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 are, are wholly good uh, developments um, in the Amer- American university. So I encourage you uh, to look to read uh, our listeners to read uh, uh, Clifton Leaf's article because it really is a very insightful, uh, very pleasant read. He's a very uh, expert journalist um, about the influence of the Dole, uh, by Dole Act, and um, have a think. About it, I'm going to say a bit more in a moment uh, about its influence on drug companies, and talking a bit about this uh, article uh, that we mentioned, uh, that this book, excuse me, that we mentioned earlier by Marsha Angel. Um, why don't we uh, take a uh, brief break? I should mention the listeners are, of course, as ever, welcome to call us at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. That's two six eight WRCT, and you can also send electronic mail. Uh, to bob at leftout.info. So we'll have a brief uh, musical interlude, and then we'll be back uh, shortly. And on Friday, I stood up to speculation about Don Rumsfeld. He's doing a fine job. I strongly support him. But what do you say to critics who believe that you're ignoring the advice of retired generals, military commanders, <laughs> who say that there needs to be a change?
And what's best is for Don Rumsfeld to remain as the Secretary of Defense. Sitting in a White House garden, talking to the Lord. But my thoughts would be busy, busy hatching if I only had a brain. I am the egghead. I'm the commander. I'm the decider. So we're uh, we're back after a brief break. Uh, that was uh, Paul Hip uh, doing uh, uh, "I Am the Decider." Actually, the decider is now the decision maker. We'll come back and talk about the big man decision maker uh, a little bit later. Uh, a little bit later in the show. Uh, listeners, as ever, are welcome to call us at uh, 412-268-9728, uh, 268-WRCT, or to send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info, and we're monitoring uh, mail during the program. So another uh, topic uh, that we want to talk about closely related to the Bayh-Dole Act uh, is the, as I mentioned earlier, is this uh, book by Marsha Angel called The Truth About D- Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us and What to Do About It. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, she's a professor of medicine at, at Harvard University, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, someone who knows what she's talking about, I would say, uh, commenting about the, uh, the, dr- the, the drug industry. This is a very interesting book. We don't have time uh, to go into uh, into it in too much detail, but it does tie into the Bayh-Dole Act because a, b- a big part of the uh, beneficiaries of the Bayh-Dole Act is the big pharma. The uh, the big pharmaceutical industries uh, are, are benefiting from this, and I'll explain why if it isn't obvious a little bit uh, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes. In a few minutes. Um, and but she uh, goes to, into much more than that. She talks really about the way in which the uh, cost of uh, pharmaceuticals and the availability of pharmaceuticals and how it's all done and what's really going on here with what is a, an enormous shell game. Well, first of all, Bob, I'm mm-hmm. going to just object to this whole thing. Okay, I mean, go ahead. You know, the drug companies are are, are just absolutely—they're saving the world. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're inventing these incredible drugs. I mean, come on, you probably take medicine. I take medicine. Everybody, most of us have taken medicine that wouldn't have existed, didn't even exist 20, 30 years ago. Those are the drug companies creating this, these wonder drugs that are saving lives, millions of lives every single day. I can't believe you're attacking this industry that's, that's just, you know. Thank you, Bill O'Reilly. So uh, Marsha Angel does address this question uh, actually quite convincingly. So I was thought I would uh, we tried to get her to come on the program today, but we were unable to reach her uh, for whatever reason. So um, perhaps we'll have her on another time in the show. So another future show. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about these arguments. Those are, those are very good arguments. So she talks about the process. Uh, the table of contents I think summarizes very well. First of all, the two hundred billion dollar colossus. So this is a an enormous entity. Two hundred. Think about two hundred billion dollars per year. Uh, is generated as uh, by the by the drug industry, and this is um, so you can imagine with that amount of money at stake, how much influence that money can buy, and really as a percentage of their profits, how little it really costs for them to do it. Uh, second chapter is called the creation of a new drug. How does it come about that drugs are actually created? Third is, and this I find uh, particularly pertinent, how much does the pharmaceutical industry really spend on R&D? <laughs> so this is a very interesting question. Another is just how innovative is the industry related to the R&D? Uh, second is Me Too drugs, the main business of the pharmaceutical industry. Six is how good are the new drugs? That's a very interesting thing to say. Uh, seven is hard sell, lures, bribes, and kicks back. Kick uh, eight is marketing mas- masquerading as education. Nine is marketing masquerading as research. Uh, number 10 is patent games stretching out the monopolies. Eleven is buying influence, how the industry makes sure it gets its way. And chapter 13 is uh, how to save the pharmaceutical industry and get our money's worth. That's a very worthwhile read, in my opinion. I enjoyed reading it. It doesn't take very long. It's really a very pleasant read and uh, gets really uh, gets really to the to the heart of the matter. So where to where to begin? So there are many things about uh, about the uh, about the drug industry. A lot of which is uh, difficult to figure out. And she does some careful studies to deduce from uh, their from their uh, from their publicly available figures that what you can get what is really true about how much money they're actually spending in research and development. But that's even more revealing is even if you tease out how much money they spend in research and development, what they call research and development is not exactly what you might think mm-hmm. is research they're and putting, development. They're trying to pump up and inflate. <clears throat> Absolutely. The budget to make it look bigger than it really is. So it's about the yes, and it's also about the corruption of the um, of the medical research industry by the drug companies because what counts as research or development really is a marketing campaign. So I think uh, for me, you know, one of the takeaway messages: what we're really paying for in enormous in enormous quantities here is the tremendous amount of money that is spent on marketing yeah, these drugs. Right. Where does the real innovation happen? At universities, of course. It doesn't happen at uh, doesn't happen at drug companies. The real innovation. The, the fundamental research that goes on, the development of new drugs, goes on at universities. Why do I mention that? Well, it's because that means that that research is being paid for by and large by the U.S. taxpayer or in foreign countries by their own national research uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. And so this is being paid for by taxpayer money. Then through the Bayh-Dole Act is often privatized uh, and sold off to uh, to the pharmaceutical companies who then cover it up and do their absolute best to uh, make money off of it at, at, a, at an outstanding, at, a, at an absolutely astonishing and breathtaking rate. In other words, a lot of it has to do with just acquisition, acquiring patents, and playing a big and yeah. complicated game. So you, you, we, we, you and I discussed the book. Um, yeah. I didn't read the book, but a few days ago we talked about it, and you mentioned mm-hmm. some things 
that I thought were, were pretty amazing scams that they're pulling off. And we can describe them. You know, it's not that complicated. It's not that hard to, to, to explain some of these scams. I think all of our listeners can understand them easily, what they're, what they're doing. So, uh, for example, one of the things that they do um, is, uh, so a drug will be, a drug will be uh, say, uh, it, it is discovered or created and patented and then marketed, and a patent only lasts 17 years. Yeah, they um, recently raised it, raised it to 20 years. Okay, 20 years. For the case of uh, pharmaceuticals. Okay, fine. So we'll go to 20 years. A little special treatment. Well, then, then, then but so after 20 years, and so the drug is a huge success. It you know, does something good, and then that's great, and we're happy about that. And then um, what they do is, near, as it's nearing the, the end of its life, um, of course, after the 20 years, normally generic companies would be able to produce the drug at pennies on the dollar compared and sell it at a vastly because for the cost of producing the drug, which is typically you know a tiny percentage of the cost you pay for the patented version. Okay, um, so well, as it's starting to approach its end of the life, the drug companies start looking around for other things that that drug might be marketed for, and uh, if they can prove that that drug has some value in a for treating a different disease and, and and it doesn't have to be very good at it i mean if, if it turns out that you know the cholesterol drug that that produces cholesterol is saves millions of lives also maybe you know handles certain types of acne and reduces the number of pimples certain people have under certain conditions um well then they can say hey we've got this new invention we're going to patent this new this drug the same drug for a different uh condition that's right. And even though yeah. it's not an important condition and it doesn't work very well for that condition, they can extend the patent for another 20 years and then cash in for the trillions, literally, of dollars that they're going to make for that same drug over the next 20 years for well, not doing nothing new. Well, what's really impor- important about it is with respect to the, uh, to the FDA, um, they, for these kinds of purposes, they don't even have to have an approval from the FDA for the use of the drug against this. I, I'm trying to find the jargon. There's a jargon phrase called off something, and I can't quite think of what it's off something. Uh, so the idea is that when a drug is approved for sale, let us say it's, um, it starts out life as a, a heart disease medication of some kind. Um, first thing is that uh, maybe many reader listeners will be surprised to discover that the criterion um, for for approving it for for use is merely that it be shown to be better than nothing. Okay, so you should understand this, right? There may be a commonly available drug that is, uh, let's say, at this stage, a generic drug, or it could even be an over-the-counter medication uh, in a hypothetical situation, which is perfectly efficacious for a certain kind of uh, disorder. They can come along with a drug. They don't have to show that it's better than the over-the-counter medicine. They don't have to show that it's better than any other medication that's available. They merely have to show that it's better than nothing. Okay, that's very important to keep your keep uh, keep in mind. They have to show that the drug is better than nothing. Now that gets it in the door. Now it's a prescription drug, so it's a it's the magic wonder so drug for some killer. sort of heart it's disease, not as good as aspirin, whatever it might killer. be. It might exactly. It may not be as useful as aspirin, but it's better than nothing. And they've proved that scientifically. You can do look at all the statistics. They've done careful study. It's absolutely for certain better than nothing. Now they've got the foot in the door. So the drug uh, is marketable for, I don't know, let's say angina or I don't know, whatever it might be. Okay. And then what happens is, is they, uh, you see, there's an interesting little loophole in the law, which is that physicians are free to prescribe any drug for any purpose that they choose. So they can perfectly well prescribe this angina medication for hair growth if, uh, if they want to. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> it doesn't have to be proven it's, it's to It's at actually the discretion be, of the it's at the discretion of It doesn't have the, to be proven to be useful for hair growth. No, no, it doesn't have to be proven to the to the FDA at all. Okay, merely so what they start doing is they start in the guise of having their uh what they call education programs. They invite uh doctors for example down to I don't know, let's pick a nice place down to the Virgin Islands and they will have, you know, an all expenses paid golfing and diving and thing and they'll have some lectures and the lectures will be to bring them in the latest uh the latest research results from the drug companies, which are things like, well, it turns out this heart medication we have uh, is also, you know, many of our physicians uh, believe that it actually promotes hair growth. <laughs> and lo and behold, when they do the studies, I'm making this up, obviously, but I'm not uh, in detail, but not in general, not as, a, not as a general statement. And lo and behold, if they trace out the, the pattern of prescription that happens after these things, the doctors are prescribing it for hair growth, and, or they're prescribing it for, you know, erectile dysfunction, or they're uh, prescribing it for acne or they're prescribing for whatever whatever yeah. it may be okay and so this is a huge part of how these uh, of how the how drugs are actually promoted so it's kind of interesting and she talks about in detail about the junkets and so on and the the means by which the these things are marketed and how they're done even without any kind of approval for, for being efficacious in any way on the diseases or disorders or whatever for which that they are actually being prescribed and which they're really marketing them for uh, they can they don't say Say to the physicians, oh, it's been proved to be effective in this means. They just say, oh, you know, we had uh, a bunch of doctors who have been using it lately, and it turns out, and uh, they're quite happy with it as a treatment yeah. for. And and it's just for your information. It's just a matter of for your. That's the education part, right? <laughs> that's the education yeah. part, and and that's a perfectly legal thing. But this is the least of it. I mean, it goes on and on. And the story uh, is described. I want to get to a few other topics before we before we sign off for for this week. It goes on and on. I mean, there's the amount of uh, of maneuvering with Me Too drugs, copying drugs, you know, making a version of the drug that some other company is selling. You know, these things are not contributing to the public health. These are not new drugs. These are not new. In fact, at the moment, I keep hearing in the press that the drug companies are all worried because there's actually nothing in the pipeline and all their various machinations that they've been going on with over the last 20 years to maintain patent on various drugs and uh, and to get them in for new for new diseases and so on is uh, is running running low. I don't know whether I can believe those claims or not, but I've certainly seen them in business section in the newspaper and so on repeatedly that there's a big worry that there's nothing new in the pipeline. So, so well, I wonder why. Well, the reason is they aren't doing any <laughs> research. Okay, What they're doing is marketing, lawyering, and manipulation of our government. So the, there's a lot of discussion here about the, the ways in which the drug companies manipulate the legal system. Uh, one we've complained about here and left out is the outrageous Republican plot uh, with the Medicare bill, which was passed Dis in 2004, disallowing the U.S. government, which is one of the largest customers of the drug industry, by, because it's buying drugs through for the Medicare system for 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 our seniors who are uh, taking drugs, the U.S. government is buying those drugs from the pharmaceutical companies. And as we've said many times here and left out, it is a matter of law that the Republicans, the Republican Party, uh, passed the legislation stipulating that it is unlawful for the U.S. government to negotiate a price for those drugs. Okay, this means, in other words, if we put it in plain English, as I've done here before, this means that it, the Republicans have stipulated that you, the U.S. taxpayer, will pay whatever it is the drug companies wish to charge for their pharmaceuticals in whatever volume we're buying them for the purposes of Medicare. Think about that. Let that sink in. 
Okay. Wait, I thought the Republicans were big free market people. They, they would know, be fiscal, for negotiation. Respons- fiscal responsibility, yes. Yeah. Yes, they, they certainly are uh, fiscally responsible. And, oh, yes, this is nothing but the free market. Yes, the twisted, the twisted argument, uh, in favor, uh, for this, for this position is, if the U.S. government were to negotiate a price for the products it's producing, then that would be government control of pricing for the drugs that the U.S. government is buying. I mean, it's incredible the nonsense, the utter nonsense that comes out. This is part of the reason why our drug costs, and, and uh, in particular medical costs in general, are going up uh, enormously. Um, anyway, uh, let's uh, finish up in this topic. But I recommend reading uh, Marsha Angel's book, The Truth About Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us and What to Do About It. I think it's a very uh, interesting study and expose of what's really going on with uh, with some aspects of medical costs. And I suspect, and we'll come back to this at other times in future editions of Left Out, I suspect also true um, in other areas of uh, American medicine. I think a lot of the reason for the price increases have, have, have little to do. Some of it has to do with demographics. Some of it has to do with the fact that we live longer and medical science has improved, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're being screwed uh, in plain English. And the Republicans, above all, are helping are helping the companies, drug companies in particular, to screw us. So speaking of the Republicans, uh, the Republican in chief, uh, the decider, now the decision maker, uh, has been uh, has been uh, pursuing his program of bipartisan cooperation with the new Democratic Congress uh, ever since the last election, as we well know. And this has uh, manifested itself in a number of uh, behaviors from uh, from uh, from reality man there in um, uh, in Washington, and uh, and so. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, pardon me. So I have been uh, particularly incensed about a couple of points uh, that have uh, a couple of things that have happened uh, just in the last two weeks. They've gotten a little bit of coverage, but to me these are these are these are points. These are issues that are less visible than the obvious uh, disaster in Iraq, but are nevertheless extremely important. One is um, a week, two weeks ago that the decider has decided to fire seven federal prosecutors uh, throughout the United States uh, in several different jurisdictions, including the jurisdiction that uh, that uh, uh, and the prosecutor who prosecuted Duke Cunningham, the Republican, let it be said again, the Republican thief from California who was convicted and is imprisoned, as far it as was I'm aware. Carol Lamb was uh, the name of the prosecutor. Was the name of the prosecutor uh, last year, and with egregious, I mean, this guy with his role. Rolls-Royce and his yacht on the uh, on the uh, the Potomac River, uh, absolute absolute uh, criminal. Not to mention, you know, Rob Nay. Not to mention uh, Tom Delay. Not to mention uh, the uh, Abramoff and the rest of them that I hope are going in the slammer. That prosecutor in San Diego, the district in San Diego, federal district in San Diego, was fired along with six others, so seven altogether, with absolutely no uh, no no cause. No cause. No accusation of any kind of misbehavior, any no cause whatsoever, and replaced by political hacks. Why is this possible? Well, you might ask, isn't it the case that new federal prosecutors have to be approved by the Senate? Oh, yes, that, that always was the case until the Republicans took over, because what happened is uh, in the renewal for the USA Patriot Act, our very own Arlen Specter, and it is extremely important to recognize this because most of our listeners on Left Out are in the state of Pennsylvania, our very own Senator Arlen Specter, has and he admits he was asked and admitted to this as not simply our allegation slipped into the legislation for the renewal of the patriot act that the decider is allowed to imp- to appoint uh federal prosecutors without 
uh, without without the need for without the need for congressional approval for mm-hmm. Senate approval. Now I must ask you, listeners, let's think about this for a moment. Under what circumstance, suppose that you were a United States senator, why would you agree to strip yourself of an important oversight power on government? Why would Arlen Specter put into the legislation that the Senate, and therefore his and also his own committee, the Judiciary mm-hmm. Committee, yeah. would now be stripped of the power to have oversight on the selection of federal prosecutors? What is the reason why has he told Arlen has he Specter, that question? No, he did not. But uh, and you know what? I don't know the answer to this, but it obviously stinks, does it not? It stinks not merely because of the outcome that I find outrageous, but also it smells of a very dirty process. Why would Arlen Specter just of his own accord decide to give up this power? Not, let alone his role and his responsibility to be representing the interests of his constituents. Not alone that. Let's look at it from a straightforward, his own personal interest, other in the interest of the Senate and being a senator and being the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at that time. Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, why, okay, would he do this? This was never discussed, though, at the time. Well, No, it was slipped in the last minute. That's it, as usual. a thousand page. Yeah, and then they just vote on him, as Conyers said in in Michael Moore's movie. We don't read the legislation that we we vote on. Young man, let me tell you something. (laughs) Okay. Arlen Specter. Let us remember Arlen Specter. Now, you might think, uh, I don't know, uh, as usual, you you and I, all of our listeners, you know, have a lot of things to do in life, and it's hard to get worry about every damn thing. But, you know, I'll tell you, these things start to accumulate. So here's, here's a new one, and they haven't started to accumulate. They're really snowballing, in my opinion, at this moment. So the, the decision maker, the big man, you know, the big macho man, the guy who's tougher than you and me, uh, the real tough guy down there in Washington, uh, is, is now, uh, has, uh, uh, and published in last week in the Federal Register a new, uh, executive order. And now this is, again, it is very important to catch the detail of this. Okay. The Soviet Union lives on in the United States. The, the decider has decided that, uh, of several federal agencies, including especially the EPA and OSHA, these are what he's really targeting, if you ask me, EPA and OSHA, are now that all of their decisions, all of their policies are going to be vetted by commissars who are political appointees who oversee any decision, any regulation, any kind of documentation, any publication, any ruling, any regulation of any kind by these seven federal agencies, including the EPA and OSHA. In particular, they are not allowed, as of uh, as of now, to have any document, any kind of gu- guideline which use words like must, are required to, should, you know, have to, nothing. They are not allowed to impose any regulations whatsoever. Moreover, anything that they do propose where they say, well, pretty please, it would be really nice if, well, if you had some extra time, if you would please maybe perhaps pay attention to the, you know, rubbish you're dumping into our rivers, if you get a chance, please, that has to be vetted by a commissar. We are now having, and it's explicitly provided to be a political appointee who is installed for the purposes of uh, of oversight. This is exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. And these are they are, called commissars? What is he calling? I'm calling them I'm calling them what, commissars. What, and and but wait, commissars what, are the Okay, but what's the difference Bob between that and what's already happened where they would appoint 
the Secretary of Labor, a person who was against labor her entire career, or a, lob, a, a, a timber industry lobbyist, the, the head of the, the EPA. The diff- the What's difference, the difference? Yeah, the difference may be relatively minor. It's just that, as a matter of fact, the head of the EPA didn't vet every single document that went out, that these documents were prepared by scientists who are working in the reality-based community, who are, who are working on the basis of facts and working on the basis of the law, now they are explicitly interfering with the execution of the laws, okay? Now, you remember that the decider is sworn to faithfully uh, uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and to faithfully execute its laws, okay? That is n- explicitly designed to thwart the interest, thwart the wishes of the Congress. And, 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 and it's being done by, on the basis of an enforced ideological conformity. This is the Soviet Union. Now, we've said many times that the uh, talk commented on the fascistic tendencies of this government. If you want to, if you would like, we can. Uh, there are many, uh, many, many examples of this. But I ask you, pay attention to these things because it's the it's the it's a rising tide. And the fact that you know the Democrats won the election, you know, for one day, I felt really great about it. But the fact is. These guys, you know, Cheney was on the uh, was on the uh, press, the meet, and all these uh, weekend television shows last uh, last weekend, saying, uh, you know, they're not going to stop us. You know, we're going to do whatever we want because, after all, he's the decider, and actually, Dick Cheney's the decider. You know, Char- uh, uh, Edgar Bergen is the is the decider. Charlie McCarthy just goes and shoots his mouth off like the damn fool that he is. And so, but pay attention to these things. These things really matter. These things really matter, and 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 it and it represents a fascistic tendency that I think is extremely threatening to the future of the United States. And I think that our our listeners uh, ought to be uh, ought to be paying ought to be paying attention to. So we have a link to uh, some articles that uh, document these uh, these decisions. Yeah. You might want to have a look at it. Uh, it's very worthwhile. Uh, in a couple of minutes that we have, uh, really less than a minute that we have remaining, uh, let me mention that we have a link in the Left Out webpage. That's uh, leftout.info in the latest program. Uh, many of our listeners will certainly know this, but uh, let us mention just for the to for those who may not to pay attention to Keith Olbermann. Thank God for Keith Olbermann uh, on MSNBC. I usually watch him on. Um, uh, YouTube or Crooks and Liars. We yeah. have a link to, for example, Olbermann's uh, commentary after the State of the Union address. Uh, I think they're well worth uh, well worth listening to. Bill O'Leary uh, detests Keith Olbermann, uh, so you know he must yeah. be on the right track. If you call him <clears> up <throat> and, and you mention Olbermann's name on his show, he'll cut, he'll cut you off in mid-sentence. Uh, uh, that could, very, they, 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 could, could very well be. But he's, he's uh, really Olbermann's he, kicking his butt in the radio. Yeah, That's right, why. which, which really hurts. Head-to-head competition. Hit him where it hurts. So uh, make, sure By the you, way, make sure you pay attention to Olbermann. Go ahead. Yeah, Olbermann's actually giving another one of his special comments tonight. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So that'll so be at 830, be... I think, or around thereabouts. Uh, it's show it on 8 o'clock. Eight o'clock he okay. does the... It's, it's Commentary toward the end. Toward the end, yeah. yeah he also so. does the worst person in the world. It's very, yeah, yeah. Very, uh, which very is, useful. Which is good, yeah. Which was... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Crystal... Uh, William Crystal a week ago. Okay. Uh, that uh, completes our show for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to Left Out. Thanks to uh, DJ producer Hank for producing our program, and thank you all for listening to our show. See you in two weeks' time.